6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 31 through 35. What you don't know, and because you don't want to know, is that behind the scenes, the software is taking care of all kinds of things for you. When you get to the end of a line, it gives you what's called a soft carriage return. That is, a carriage return that'll change its position where your margins end up. You change the margins, it'll adjust all that. You don't hit the carriage return after it. You, you do that only at the end of a sentence, right? There's soft carriage return, there's hard carriage return. Also, you may be printing part of it in italics, some of it underlined, some of it bold. All that stuff is hidden codes behind the text. And what are your margins? Top margin, bottom. You know, there's just, there are thousands of problems the software's solving for you that you don't even want to get involved with unless you want to do something a little different. There are occasions then when you need to push a key typically called revealed codes, and it shows you in some other color or some other way all these little codes that are embedded in your text that you don't see printed in your document, nor do you see it on the screen, unless you ask for it. So that you can make changes, you can make something a little different, because you're going to set it up for publishing or whatever, right? But it's interesting, every time when you're doing that, when you push revealed codes, you might realize that that's what we need in our lives. You see, we need a key we can push that will show us what's going on behind the scenes. You see, just like in your word processor, you've got the text and you've got all this stuff going on invisibly behind you to make it all work, right? You and I have no visibility of what God is doing around you. There are threats and attacks on you you don't even know about. Why? Because God's dealing with it, right? In fact, the, the experts tell me that all the physical world is but a manifestation of a spiritual warfare. You get glimpses of this here in Second Kings 6. We get a glimpse of it in Daniel chapter 10. We get glimpses of it all through the scripture, little hints where we begin to realize the validity of this outlook. You and I are the same thing. In our lives, there's a spiritual warfare going on. There is a prince of the power of Persia, like in Daniel 10 and Greek. There's also a prince of the power of the United States and the Russian Republic and Kazakhstan. And the, in other words, all these entities that we know as forces are represented in this other domain spiritually. Bible tells weird ideas, but that's what the Bible lays out. And from time to time, it would be neat if we somehow could push a key called Reveal Codes and realize that the forces that are around you are greater than the forces that are against you. Interesting. I suspect there's times that we're grateful that we don't see what's going on. Just put it into trust. Okay, chapter 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in justice. Now, if you understand the world, you realize that's yet future. <laughs> that's not historical. It's certainly not present. 
It's yet future. And what is he talking about? Of course, the kingdom age. As Isaiah has a tendency to do, he inserts here a sense of optimistic relief in a sense. He's hitting all this heavy stuff, but he gives us as a uplift, a reminder that, hey, the, the kingdom is coming. The millennium is coming. That's going to be a righteous king. There is none righteous but Jesus Christ. When it speaks of the righteous king, we're talking about our Lord and Savior, the King of kings, Lord of lords, before whom every knee shall bow. Verse 2, And a man shall be like a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, like rivers of water in a dry place, like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see shall not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will hearken, and the heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerer shall be ready to speak plainly. <laughs> and in the King James, the vile person shall no more be called liberal. <laughs> you know, as a conservative, I love that phrase, but I can't pawn that off you. The word actually means noble. But in the King James, they called it liberal. But the word really means noble. You know what oxymorons are, right? That's a self-contradictory phrase, like military intelligence. Right? <laughs> Thinking liberal, right? <laughs> to which they rebut, or compassionate conservative, you know? And on it goes. In any case, the vile person shall no more be called noble, and the churl said to be bountiful. And the vile person shall speak villainy, and his heart shall work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and utter error against the Lord to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Now don't tell me Washington, D.C. doesn't show up in the Bible. Okay. I'm being only partially facetious. Verse 7, And the instruments also of the churl are evil. Churl means empty or, or, or vapid, if you will, are evil. And he deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. And the noble deviseth noble things, and by noble things shall he stand. Rise up, ye women who are at ease. Now here, this passage is following, you should understand, the idea of women at ease is used in the derogatory sense, okay? It's at ease in the bad sense. When he speaks of careless, he means care less, that is, confident, as we'll see here, okay? So it's not a broad statement, it's aimed at some specific issues that you'll see emerge from the text. Rise up, ye women who are at ease, hear my voice, ye careless daughters, give ear unto my speech. Many days and years shall ye be troubled, ye careless women, for the vintage shall fail and the gathering shall not come. Crumble, ye women who are at ease, be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip you and make you bare and gird your sackcloth upon your loins. They shall smite you upon the breasts. For the pleasant fields of the fruitful vine, upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and the towers shall be dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture flocks, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted as a forest. Dire predictions some of them on the immediate horizon in terms of the desolation that will be forthcoming, but obviously also having a larger view in the future. And yet, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. And when he, Isaiah talks this way, we're reminded that Joel was a contemporary, and Joel speaks in chapter 2, the day of the Lord. And the book of Joel will speak for itself, let you jump into that, but tie this in concept. The Spirit there is a Spirit that Joel talks about in great detail. 
Verse 16, then justice shall dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Obviously a kingdom passage. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in assured dwellings in quiet resting places. When it shall hail, coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters and send forth there the feet of the ox and the ass and so forth. Now we're in chapter 33 and Isaiah is going to refocus again on the distress of Jerusalem and its deliverance. Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. The theme here is to keep your promises. And what the allusion is to is a covenant that Hezekiah had made with Assyria. Hezekiah paid for peace. He, He succumbed to what in those days was equivalent to what we would call land for peace. Okay, we'll get to that in verse 8. He specifically mentions the has broken the covenant. Okay, what we might do here is turn to 2 Kings 18. Just to show you the parallelism with the 2 Kings era and what's going on here. 2 Kings chapter 18. Pick it up about verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, come up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria in Lachish, saying, I have offended. Withdraw from me that which thou puttest on me I will bear. Or lay on your tax and go away. The king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And by the way, there's some dispute exactly what a talent was when you're talking about gold, because they had some different measures. But you're talking somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. Talent was a lot. It's not a little coin. It's a, it's a chunk, okay? At that time did Hezekiah strip the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah the king of Judah hath overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So he bought peace. He paid the price, Right? And we'll see what happens. Of course, you know that uh, Sennacherib still wasn't satisfied, and there's attack, and we'll deal with that later. But as you get to Isaiah 33, see, Woe to thee that spoilest and wast not spoiled, dealest treacherously, and dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end of dealing treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. You see, Assyria is going to get theirs. A little city to the south is going to rise and unyoke themselves from Assyria and emerge as the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar's father, who was king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the general. He, he creates the Chaldean Empire. And the Assyrians will get theirs later. That's later. Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people fled, and the lifting of thyself, the nations were scattered, and your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times, and the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is his treasure." Behold, the valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceases. He hath broken the covenant. He hath despised the cities. He regardeth no man. 
This is speaking, of course, of Sennacherib in the local sense. But if you're a sensitive student of prophecy, you also know often, not always, but often, there's a double reference. There's also a larger view. And there is a sense in which the title of the Assyrian is also has in view the coming world leader in a broader sense. Verse 9, the earth mourneth and languishes, the Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Sharon is like a plain, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now I will rise, saith the Lord, now I will be exalted, now I will lift up myself. Ye shall conceive chaff, ye shall bring forth stubble. Your breath, like fire, shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, they're like thorns cut up, shall they be burned in the fire. Hear, ye that are far off, what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. Now, this allusion, by the way, to these places may not mean a lot to you and I, unless you're uh, very literate biblically. Lebanon, uh, the word Laban means white, by the way. The northern mountains, 120 miles of snow-covered mountains with cedars and trees. Gorgeous, gorgeous area. The cedars of Lebanon are legend. Sharon is at the foot of Mount Carmel, and it is known for flowers and forests and so forth. So the Rose of Sharon, of course, is legend. And Carmel divides Sharon from Estrelon. You see, uh, Carmel divides it from the rocky hills. And, of course, in that direction is a place called Megiddo, which has its own, both history and future. And Bashan, of course, is the Transjordan upland from Hermon to Gilead. Again, high plains, forests of oak, and known for a while, cattle and other things. But, okay, so these labels are idiomatic, if you will, of lush, neat places. But here he's saying how that they're going to be ashamed. Lebanon is ashamed. Sharon is like a plain, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. In other words, it's his idiomatic way of describing the desolation that uh, will be endured here. But then, as Isaiah does, he shifts gears to the coming results of all this cleansing judgment. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Let's see, this whole idea of our God is a devouring fire is, of course, a, a major idiom initiated in the Torah, carrying all the way through the book of Revelation. But who shall, let me ask you the question, who shall dwell with a devouring fire? You and I. Because we will dwell in Christ's righteousness, not our own, if you're in Christ. That's the grand news, as we begin to understand it. Verse 15, He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppressions, he that restraineth his hands from holding bribes, that stoppeth his ears from the hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from the seeing evil. You know, a lot of these sins we listen and we understand, because we read the Ten Commandments. And we may not be as obedient as we ought to be, but at least we understand them. There's one here that I'll just highlight, you see. It says, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He's talking about someone who doesn't subscribe to cable TV, right? Or something. And my tongue's in my cheek, but I think you get my message. Verse 16, he shall dwell on high, his place of defense shall be strongholds of rocks, bread shall be given him, his waters shall be pure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, they shall behold the land that is far off. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counteth the towers? Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of a stammering tongue that thou canst not understand. 
Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of its stakes shall ever be removed, neither shall any of its cords be broken. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. Now we can analyze this thing very heavily because there's subtleties in here that do allude to the millennium and the various roles that are implied here in terms of the judicial, legislative, and executive roles, if you will, of the messianic king. But those are subtleties that we'll really get into later in the book, but they're here alluded to. The, the judge, the lawgiver, and our king. You notice those three functions. So that's the very same pillars our government's built on. The concept of the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial. You see the same pillars, if you will, of completeness are in there. Verse 23, thy tacklings are loosed. They could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of the great spoil divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Kind of uh, interesting. Okay, we'll keep moving. Chapter 34. Come near, ye nations. Notice the shift in emphasis now. Not talking Jerusalem, not talking Assyria, not talking Ephraim. Come near, ye nations, to hear. See, in the Old Testament, that's unusual stuff. It happens occasionally, but be recognize that it's unique. Isaiah is dealing with whom? Not Jerusalem or Israel, and not their specific immediate enemies. See, Isaiah is shifting gears to something broader, apocalyptically. Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world, and all the things that come forth from it. For the indignation, ooh, ooh, indignation of the Lord, that's scary stuff. We're talking wrath of God here. None of us have any idea, have ever seen, or have any concept of what the wrath of God is. We may experience his correction. We may experience adversity. We may experience adversity in various forms, medically, financially, emotionally, all kinds of ways that we can face troubles. But don't confuse that with the wrath of God. That's withheld. There will be a day when it will no longer be withheld. There is the indignation of God. The, for the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations. doesn't say most. It doesn't say just that particular category. The indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them and hath delivered them to the slaughter. See, we suddenly realize that Isaiah here shifted gears. He's talking... Heavy-duty stuff. We're talking day of the Lord, as the expression goes. We're talking Armageddon kind of things. We're talking Revelation 19 on, etc. We're talking Joel, etc. He continues, verse 3, The slain shall be cast out, and their stench shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountain shall be melted with their blood. Boy, Isaiah has a way with words, doesn't he? Verse 4, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. Really? 
And the heavens shall be rolled together like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down, as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and like the fallen fig from the fig tree. Weird language. Yet it's familiar to you. Why? Because you remember it from Revelation chapter 6. And what intrigues me the most is this whole idea that the heavens, you know, roll up together like a scroll. I can remember as a kid reading critical commentaries saying, you know, how quaint that language is. It sort of visualizes the Hebrew kind of the sky is like a canopy and it's rolled up. That's not what it says. The heavens are going to be rolled up like a scroll. Now, that could be just a figure of speech, except I don't think it is because it shows up in John's writing in Revelation, the idea of the heavens rolling up like a scroll, right? I'll tell you where this comes home to you is that I don't, won't ask for a show of hands how many of you tend classes in vector analysis or tensor calculus. But in the language of that, okay, we've got a few. You have our prayers. <laughs> the mathematicians speak of space and matter as being the result of space being uncurled and stretched out. It's interesting that Maimonides, a Hebrew sage writing in the 12th century, he's a Kabbalist, not a Kabbalah, but a Kabbalist, a mystic in terms of the Hebrew text, and his analysis of Genesis 1 is something I lean heavily on in our Genesis tapes for lots of reasons. I was first pointed to all of this by my friend uh, Jerry Schroeder, who operates out of Jerusalem, published a book. He's a, an Orthodox Jew that's a nuclear physicist, wrote a book called Genesis and the Big Bang. If you're interested in that sort of thing, it's worth reading. But the point is, uh, he's the one to point out to me that Maimonides pointed out 800 years ago several interesting things. Not only that matter and energy, but also time and space had a beginning. That's a very sophisticated idea. But Maimonides inferred that from the shape of the letters in the Hebrew text of Genesis 1. He also came to the conclusion from Genesis 1 that the universe has ten dimensions. Four are measurable and six are unknowable. Quaint stuff as a Kabbalist. Cute writing. Who takes it seriously? And yet you walk across the street to a lecture on particle physics of 1991 and you discover that the particle physicists have discovered that the universe has not the three dimensions that we know of length, width, and height, and time, four dimensions together. It has not four, but ten. Four of them are measurable, length, width, height, and time. We can measure those to a certain extent. The other six are unknowable because they're curled in less than 10 to the minus 35 centimeters. And if you're in particle physics and all that, there's a whole other thing, and I won't even get into that because not only is it difficult to understand, they've also taken to given the various properties whimsical names. It's a whole other study. The point is, though, in the most advanced frontiers of modern science today, as the physicists grapple for a theory of everything to reconcile the discoveries of particle physics with the cosmological discoveries, they tie this all together with what they call superstrings, which requires what? Ten dimensions. The same conclusion that Maimonides came to 800 years ago from the text of the Torah in the book of Genesis. But I get into all of this because when the Bible speaks that the heavens were stretched, they're using the current terminology of tensor calculus to describe our present understanding of space-time. So that's another thing. I won't bore you with all of that further other than to make you sensitive that if those of you that have an aptitude and interest to get into this area, you'll discover that we're finally catching up with the diligent students of the Torah who took the Torah seriously. Okay. Kind of fun. 
But then the heavens are going to be rolled together like a scroll. Ooh, the implications of that. It's another way of saying the same thing that Peter says in his letters, that the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Yeah, I love that stuff. We go into school and we learn about negative and positive charges, right? We know that like charges repel and unlike charges attract. How many of you learned that in school, right? And then you go uh, a few weeks later, you're in class, and you discover, well, the atom consists of a bunch of positive charges surrounded by electrons, and they're balanced, and that just makes an atom fine. And then you ask the teacher, well, wait a minute, if we've got all these positive charges in the nucleus of the atom, what holds them together? They don't know. They have very fancy ways of hiding the fact they don't know. And one of these times we'll get into a particle physics discussion, but I don't want to distract us any further than that, other than to say that we know what holds them together. For Colossians say that he, the one with whom we have to, is through whom all things are held together. It's literally all things consist in the King James, held together in the Greek. And it's interesting that there's a time when he ain't going to do it anymore. It's going to be interesting. You can talk about your quarks and your baryons and your particle physics. Hey, interesting stuff. That's another evening. Let's go on. Verse 5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Now, the word, the reference to Edom here is, in my opinion, probably idiomatic. Yes, there's literal Edom, but as you study the Bible, you realize that the Edomites were the traditional enemies of Israel. So while it may be Edom literally, of course, it may be actually a, what's called a synecdoche, a, 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 a metonym, a specific for the general. You often say, so-and-so prepares a fine table. Use that expression, right? doesn't mean just the table. It means a fine home, fine appointment. You follow me? We sometimes will use uh, rhetorically a specific, meaning it connotatively, not denotatively. And that's what might be going on here. The Edomites, if you recall, when Moses wanted to cross the land of Edom in the wilderness wanderings, they were denied passage in Numbers 20. And uh, David later subdues the Edomites in 2 Samuel 9. And, of course, there's a revolt by the Edomites under Jeroboam when there's the civil war and all of that. They smote Judah. They actually aligned themselves with Judah's enemies under Ahaz, when Ahaz was the king. And on it goes. Edom was the uh, twin of Jacob, if you will. It's kind of interesting that in one womb we had an Arab and a Jew. That's kind of fun. Think about that a while. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.